Hello and welcome to StratHack Season 2, a podcast series that aims to dig deep into the art of marketing strategy and decision making. Hosted by me, Sarah Holland, Deputy CEO of Ketchum. And me, Amelia Tarode, founder of Formbreak. In each episode, we lift the lid on a company or individual who inspires us, talking with them about the decisions they've made and the strategic process they've gone through to achieve success. Then stay with us as we discuss what we've learned, identifying and highlighting the key brand lessons and marketing learnings which we believe will be applicable to businesses anywhere, before asking ourselves and you the really tough question. So what are we now going to do differently? Welcome to this episode of StratHack, where today we're talking to Ross Farquhar, Marketing Director of Little Moons. This is a story of knowing yourself and knowing your brand, of cult and culture, innovation, and of course, really delicious ice cream. We're delighted to be back on StratHack with the amazing Ross Farquhar, currently Marketing Director at Little Moons, previously CMO at Wagamama, where in his tenure, he drove incredible growth and also managed to piss off Piers Morgan, a combination career high we are all surely envious of. Prior to that, Ross spent seven years in agency land at Gray, Mullenlow and 101, where he was part of amazing work that you'd all be familiar with, like the hermit crabs in their little house shells for Zoopla. Uh, he made washing machines and Hoover's Fly for Avios. And as if that wasn't enough, he started out at Cadbury and before that was at Diageo. So we're grateful that having already given us plenty of chocolate and booze, he's now turned his hand to ice cream. Ross, welcome to StratHack. Uh, we're really excited to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for uh, thank you so much for saying yes. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, pleasure, pleasure is all ours. So first up, Ross, um, before we hack into the strategy behind Little Moons, can you explain to listeners who perhaps have not had the pleasure of trying the product what exactly are they? I can't imagine what you're missing if you haven't tried one of these uh, incredible things. So. So a Little Moon is what's called a mochi ice cream ball uh, elsewhere in the world, which is essentially uh, a sort of artisanal gelato, a ball of ice cream uh, that's then been wrapped in this soft sweet dough. Uh, and the soft sweet dough uh, originates in Japan. Uh, so you'll find mochi in, on, on the streets of Japan, normally with a, a different kind of filling, a, a red bean paste most uh, frequently. And then the kind of more westernized or fusion version is uh, to fill them with ice cream. So, so you end up with this you know, portion controls, uh, little bites of ice cream that is, you know, a, a fundamentally a different way of eating ice cream, which is, is really exciting. And they are delicious. I'm going to give you some fa- some facts about Little Moon. So 2,500% sales increase apparently since December 2020, almost 200 million views on TikTok, winner of the, Go- the Grocer Gold Awards SME brand of the year 2021. Um, and Ross, you've told me that they are an amazing innovation in a dull ice cream category. And I loved your insight that they're part adult and sophistication and part childlike, playful and fun. So in short, they are a delicious marketing phenomena and the must-have food of 2021, we think. So go and buy them. I'm, I'm using podcasts as a sort of direct marketing initiative to get everyone out there. So yeah, go and pick up some packs. I actually wanted to kind of just take a little bit of a breath and actually go back a couple of steps. Uh, take you back if it's okay to sort of the early days of the pandemic, spring 2020, you weren't yet at Little Moons. You were sort of exiting that CMO role at Wagamama's. I guess it'd be useful for us to kind of just understand how were you feeling and what was that journey like? What was that switch up like as well from kind of 
Asian-inspired restaurant chain, there's one on every corner kind of feeling, exiting that role, looking at the next challenge. Just take us back and kind of talk us through that. Definitely. So I, I remember the start of the first lockdown very well, because actually the day that um, the first lockdown was announced was the day I was made redundant from, from Wagamama. So Wagamama kind of had the foresight to go, you know what, things are going to get really difficult in, in the dining sector uh, going forward. And, and we have to make some difficult decisions. And, and what we probably don't need is a sort of very senior strategic marketer plotting how to grow demand. We, we just need to work out how to keep this business afloat in, in troubled waters. So, um, so I've been made redundant, completely understandably. I look back on that and go, God, that was probably the right call for the business. So, so I get it. But I was then in a very weird situation because I was on six months of gardening leave and I, I was sort of reflecting on what I wanted to do next. And... I, you know, I've had a lot of different experiences in my career, both agency and client side, big companies, small companies, food businesses, not food businesses. And I spent a long time just trying to work out what really made me happy, uh, where I found, felt fulfilled. Um, and what I sort of worked out is I think I am at heart uh, someone who really enjoys being in smaller businesses because the, the autonomy and the pace that comes with that, the ability to go and try things and see whether they work or not. And, you know, not a huge problem if they don't work and brilliant if they do. That really, really appeals to me. I loved, uh, you know, the startup days of 101, some creative agency that I um, was once a part of. And so I felt like I wanted to find my way into something a bit more like that. I love foods. And honestly, when you've just been made redundant, your confidence gets knocked a bit. So you kind of want to gravitate to the thing that you know how to do quite well, because it, it, you, you don't want to end up in another role where you're suddenly filled with imposter syndrome. Um, and beyond that, I, I was really open to what that was was going to look like. And then I was approached about the, the Little Moon's role. And I didn't know a huge amount about the brand, but immediately rushed out to try them because, you know, there are two categories I've always wanted to work in. One is pet food, one is uh, ice cream and so I was very excited to be sort of approached about this ice cream opportunity because I actually love the category as much as Amelia says as she's quite right I, I think the category has been lacking in innovation for a good couple of decades yeah. but I, I absolutely love the category and I eat ice cream constantly so I was very excited to be approached about this um, but it's a small business and, and you know you have to ask yourself I'm going from managing a team of you know 25 people in in exactly as you say a, a restaurant chain that is on the corner of every high street to a brand that's not known yet um, uh, and so I was you know going through that in my mind and, and then I met the founders Howard and Vivian Wong who, who started Little Moons over a decade ago and we just clicked very quickly in the interview process or at least I felt like we we clicked. We clicked over dogs walking into Zoom calls uh, during the interview process when we suddenly realised our, our love of dogs was was very much mutual and ended up talking more about that and, and the fact that the dogs often came into the office than, um, than anything else. So we just clicked as people and it felt really right. And, and the more that I talked to them, the more I got excited about the opportunity and, and found my way into this really unusual, um, small but fast growing business. It's interesting. I wanted to pull on a couple of points that you raised there. I think the confidence point you raised is interesting because even when you were reflecting back and thinking about that time at 101 that was still agency side it's a little bit of a kind of different flex you've got a different kind mm. of skin in the game when you're scaling somebody's business and you've got to know the founders and you're absolutely in it from day one and what do you think it was that kind of gave you that push to say I recognize what I need from where I've been and I recognize the kind of marketer that I want to be and kind of how I want to step into that but what was that decision kind of making process 
like because building brands in that scale up context at 101 is very different to building a brand that is your brand now you've kind of stepped into it kind of yeah what what did that step feel like couldn't be more different i mean the first two businesses that i worked on at 101 were avios and mr kipling um so you know completely different to the environment that i was going to find myself in i mean i guess two things I'd say. One is I'm inherently quite an opportunistic person. Like I get excited about things that I haven't done before and I think are going to activate parts of my brain that haven't been activated before. So so the idea of joining a sale up and a family run business was inherently exciting, even though, you know, I, I think it's well known across the industry that you have to really think about your chemistry with founders when you go into these sort of situations, because if you don't have that chemistry, ultimately the business is their baby and it's deeply personal to them in a way that perhaps it isn't when you work at, this is my experience, at like Cadbury or Diageo or what have you. So you have to make sure you've got this, this brilliant chemistry, otherwise you might be stepping into something that's not going to be very enjoyable for you. Luckily, I, I really did have that that chemistry and then to your point about confidence I, I felt like you know I had worked at very large businesses I hadn't realized at Cadbury quite how lucky I was to be in a business like Cadbury where you get all the training and development and support you can imagine you're surrounded by brilliant people I, I mean I was even especially lucky because I was there during the era of guerrilla and all that yeah. kind of thing so again you don't realize it's a golden era until you look back on it and go wow that, that was quite incredible so I just learned so much stuff out of that and I, I sort of approached Little Moons going no do you know what I, even though I might have had my confidence knocked by being made redundant for the first time in my career I think I can add some value here I can see what this business needs I, I can see why I would complement what they they already have I, I can do this so in some ways it was a bit of self-care coming to Little Moons and it has worked because it's a lovely business. It's like being cocooned because it's such a lovely business full of lovely people, but also just uh, it, it's a challenge that I was confident that I could take on and, and deliver on based on my past experience. Vivian and Howard sound, sound, sound great. Um, the sibling founders. Did, did, is it right that their, that their mum had a, had, an, had a bakery? So they grew up around that. Is, 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 that, is that right? Yes, so Little Moons was genuinely founded in their their parents' kitchen. So, for background, Vivian and Howard's uh, mum and dad emigrated to to the UK from Asia uh, and were natural entrepreneurs. They had a few businesses, and the very successful and long running one was a, an Asian bakery business that you know still exists today. And so, Howard and Vivian um, were were you know packing biscuits and doing deliveries from just as all as soon as they could, as soon as they were were old enough. So they they've been around. That, the kind of hardships and joys of entrepreneurship. Um, and actually that business made mochi because they make authentic Asian bakery products and, and mochi is one of them. So they, they knew how to do it. Um, their parents also you know, have a, a very typical ethos of caring deeply about quality and caring deeply about delivering on your promises to customers. So that kind of been drummed into them as well. So Howard and Vivian went off after university to go into jobs in the city. But, but I think if you were talking to them, they'd tell you they always had in the back of their minds can't can't see me being in a huge financial institution for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm going to have to go and start something. And so it was only a couple of years before they they left those roles uh, and were sitting in their parents' kitchen, really trying to perfect what a mochi ice cream product was going to look like. And then they, you know, they built the business actually out of their their parents' bakery business. So um, uh, that business is called Sunfung Foods, and, and it uh, the, the factory essentially is where Little Wins were made for for a very long time, and we're still sort of notionally attached to it whenever we need to do smaller runs of things, even though we're in, we're a much bigger facility now. 
So, so you you joined you joined a, a, a scale up. Uh, I think I think Sarah and I would both agree when when it's your business, it, it's always deeply personal. It is. It's like a it's like a it is like a child. I think people do you know you feel incredibly um, attached to the business. So you joined Little Moons. Was it was it in May May twenty twenty? Uh, round about then, so uh, so officially started a little bit later, but started working with them a bit, a bit earlier here and there because it was a really pivotal time for the business. Actually, they were really you know you're getting to that point. I mean, it's ten years old the business. I talk about it as this um, you know slow burn overnight sensation as we'll come on to. It's actually been around for a long time, um, but they've always been so focused on just a really high quality product. That's that's the core of the business, and the brand had. Um, lots and lots of potential, but hadn't necessarily been the thing they, they've given as much focus to. So when I joined, they were going through a process of really trying to sharpen what the brand looked like, what its purpose was, that that kind of thing. So I, I got involved a little bit early, yeah. That's great. So I, in fact, I was going to ask how much of the sort of the brand and the marketing strategy was in place when you joined and or, or, or how much um, were, were you responsible in helping to shape the brand as, as we know it today? So I think when you know when I joined and I was involved in the process at the very beginning, they, they were just sharpening the positioning essentially. And I do think positioning for scale-up founder-led businesses is slightly different to when you're in a, a business that doesn't have that influence. That's ultimately a corporate creation because actually, in my experience, the best way to do positioning with those sort of businesses is you talk to the founders and work out why they genuinely are doing this. Like, what's the what's the reason? You can do. Of course, there's a consumer element and, and absolutely matching to demand and needs and all the kind of good stuff that you learn when you're in a big FMCG. But the truth is is often a more powerful or potent way to position the brand than than the sort of creation that you could do through a strategy process. So, so a lot of that initial positioning bit was actually a process of extracting why this business existed from Howard and Vivian, people who are instinctively good marketers, but not um, literate in the kind of marketing buzzwords that we all, all use. So extracting that truth. So we, we, we got we got to that really quickly as I was joining. The marketing strategy then in terms of, you know, how we were going to scale the brand and where we took that positioning was something I, I ultimately developed with the marketing team here after I joined. But because I guess when you joined, it wasn't, you couldn't buy it in many places. It was, it was a, you know, it was pretty hard to find. So, I mean, was one of your, I imagine one of your first sort of strategic decisions must have been about distribution and supermarkets and what, where you could actually buy the product. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to um, overplay how strategic these things are sometimes. Like actually in scale-ups, particularly in food businesses, you kind of know what you need to do, but it's deeply pragmatic. And it's a little bit of this followed by a little bit of that that then leads to a little bit more of this. So in the case of distribution, you know, if I was go back to Byron Sharpesque things, you need to be easy to buy in order to then be converting the mental availability that um, that you're creating. And those things tend to go in lockstep. A little bit more distribution leads to a little bit more mental availability, leads to a little bit more distribution. So in truth, when I joined, we were in Tesco and Tesco were really supportive of us and, and still are to this day. They've been an absolutely brilliant partner. Um, we were uh, growing rapidly in France and Germany. We uh, were listed in, in Acado and, and Waitrose and so on. So we were tricky to find. But if you if you liked Little Moons and there were and there are a sort of cult following of Little Moons, people who, who really do love them and knew exactly where to get them. But we weren't quite at that kind of yeah, you can pop into any shop and you're going to find some little moons on the freezer shelf yet. And and it really impacts your media choices, actually skipping ahead to executional end of things, because you, you kind of have to start thinking, 
how am I going to get the best bang for my limited buck knowing that our distribution might be patchy and therefore I'm sort of trying to do stuff at the top of the funnel that that uh, just builds the brand in the eyes of more and more people but I need to do that in a way that's going to show a return relatively quickly to build confidence in marketing throughout the organization so I need to somehow tie that into where people can actually buy them. I guess just to pick up on your point there because you mentioned Sharp um, and to think about the brand building piece because there's another side to this cult brand TikTok very fame driven very of the moment but you're a classically trained marketer you know that that's still got to be about brand building sustainable growth longevity how were you navigating those kind of two things of trying to kind of maximize that phenomena and kind of really drive that because you knew that it was it was driving distribution and it was driving all of the right things and as you say that lock changes they work in tandem physical and mental availability inform one another and push each other forward what was also kind of going through your mind strategically in terms of how you were trying to make that sustainable so you know the saw and the steps in the familiar graph that we 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 all love and know what was what was the kind of strategy there that you were kind of building for the long term as well as kind of taking advantage of the moment that you found yourself in? So I was quite lucky, honestly, that we'd already done the strategic planning exercise before really good fortune struck on on TikTok. And I say lucky because, I mean, if you work in a big FMCG business and you're a brand manager, the business planning process comes along whether you want it to or not. And often you think about it as a bit of a pain in the neck, a sort of necessary evil because it's going to involve a lot of PowerPoint. But but you kind of learn how to do it. And no one's asking you to do that in a small business. So I, when I came in, drew on all those skills that I'd learned in, in the past and just said, no, 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 you need to do this, Ross. Even if you could get away with not doing it, you actually do need to do the exercise and you need to have a document at the end that has made some choices and is going to effectively create some North Stars for you for for where you're going to take the brand. So we'd already done the work to go, okay, it is brilliant that we are a cult brand and we are so grateful for the consumers that have uh, been the early adopters of this product, but our ambitions are huge. And that ultimately means we need to bring into the fold all the sort of medium and heavy ice cream shoppers in our key priority geographies. Um, That means we're going to plot a path towards, well, firstly, broadcast kind of reach at at the the right moment. Um, And secondly, that we're going to try and find a way to um, find relevance amongst a slightly older audience than perhaps we had been fortunate enough to bring in to date. Because the thing about Little Moons are they are naturally... Um, if it seems for one reason or another, really compelling to young people and particularly young women. We have an amazing following uh, amongst women in their sort of late teens, early 20s, and so grateful for them. Um, but for this brand to be sustainable on a, 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 a sort of the scale basis that we want it to, we need people who are a bit more like me, people in their sort of late 30s, early 40s who don't go out anymore, so they spend loads of money in the supermarket all the time, and, and that's how they treat themselves. So so we needed to find a way to sort of link those two things, not ignore the traction we had with the young people, but ultimately create a broader base of, of consumer support. So we'd kind of had all those hard conversations internally about that well before TikTok hit. TikTok then, you know, so in, in some ways was really just a response to what I think is a brilliant product because it, it was genuinely organic. It wasn't something that, yes, we were on TikTok and we were generating content and, and getting good traction with that. What actually happened at the beginning of 2021 um, was consumers picking up this product in a very weird situation for them because 
you're in whatever lockdown number three. The only place you can literally go legally is the supermarket. Um, it's miserable because it's dark all the time and it's cold. So you go to the supermarket and you try and find some entertainment in that because it's the only time you can leave the house. And then you find these really entertaining, playful little treats that are fundamentally different than anything else that's on, on the market, at least in the ice cream category. And you turn it into content if you're a creative person who's already on TikTok. So they did that. They responded to the product brilliantly. And then people started replicating it and, and things just went absolutely um, crazy in, in, in a really good way. And Amelia talks about it. Our sales, you know, rocketed up two and a half thousand percent in, in Tesco at that time. It was absolutely crazy. But to your original question, because we'd done that strategy exercise ahead of time and we'd gone, we're really looking for broadcast reach and a slightly older group of people who, um, who will buy this sustainably. That gave us the clarity of thought to go, we need to turn this TikTok thing into a bigger, more broadly known, broadly understood phenomenon. And it just meant that we we hit the phones to journalists and we uh, made a very small media investment on TikTok to give the whole thing a second win because we knew the bigger it got on TikTok, the more likely it would be that journalists would write about it. And if journalists wrote about it and you, you were reading about this phenomenon in The Telegraph or The Sun, we were going to be reaching those people who were going to be really important to us in the long term. Yeah, it's a great case study actually for that seamless integration and how not to be so afraid of the mainstream at that moment and actually not try and keep it in one place and it's interesting that you can because you can do that correlation between Tesco and sales and you can go in and have that conversation I imagine hitting the phones with journalists was also you hitting the phones in terms of distribution and actually trying to kind of get that reach and really seeing all of that in the 360 it's a great great kind of case study it's brilliant it's one of those things where strategy gets slightly ahead of your capability though because you're right we absolutely <laughs> were on the phones yeah. retailers and i'm so glad that we're now broadly available across the uk um but of course no one plans for that kind of demand uplift and we manufacture our own product because it's uh you it, it care that much about how good the product is so you, you can't grow your capacity that quickly and actually scarcity then became quite a big part of the phenomenon for good or for bad obviously everyone in yeah. the business hates to see customers disappointed because they can't get their hands on on this product me the marketer in the room you know slightly evilly is like because scarcity is actually quite handy to you because it makes these things even higher perceived value um and it accelerates the, the whole phenomenon so to an extent even though i don't like disappointing consumers it's quite quite handy really yeah you can definitely play that in the short term mm. you sort of described it a little bit as those elements of perfect storm that you've leveraged you've acted on you had that kind of planning in place now as things are changing again and who know you know and now we're all kind of in that uh mode of living with uncertainty and trying to kind of plan in multiple dimensions at kind of all times what do you see how are you going to build on this now what have you learned specifically as well that you're going to kind of take into what comes next is this about international that's a bit of a challenge now in kind of current context how are you going to get how are you managing all of those factors well as you've said when you grow at pace like that that in itself is a is a challenge it's a challenge from a human resources perspective as much as kind of distribution and all of those other factors how are you now managing that in what's still a founder-led business you know i i think the thing about going viral and it's actually happened to me twice now because I was 
I was involved in bringing Whisper back when I was at Cadbury, back in the days when Facebook was a new thing. And so lightning has literally struck twice for me, and I don't know what it is, but but virality has this kind of irresistible allure that it makes a business think that, gosh, if we can just repeat that trick, um, we'll, be, we'll be made. When the truth of it is, I mean, you've gone through it a couple of times, you realise quite how much of it is driven by good fortune, and you just can't bet the house on it. So actually, what's been quite good this year is we're so grateful it's happened but we're not transfixed by it we've got our eyes on the bigger prize and and the bigger prize for us is we fundamentally believe little moons aren't just 2021's must try treat though that they are they they're a genuine sort of revolution in the category and and their potential scale and the role that they can play in many more people's lives is much much bigger than what we've experienced this year and that is essentially that you know ice cream the category that i love has largely been available in tubs or sticks. Those are your two choices with some little variation along the sides. And while every other sweet treat category has been diversifying, trying to eat each other's lunch, and in particularly around snacking, ice cream's kind of been stuck in this frozen aisle, um, just doing the same things over and over again. Little moons are different to that. They are um, snackable ice cream that we know are relevant across a much broader set of occasions throughout the day and not just dessert. We think that is fundamentally really exciting because it's incremental to the category. It's a new need and set of occasions for ice cream to start appealing to. So so because we have our eyes set on the prize and because we think the scale of that is potentially much, much bigger than we've even experienced this year, it means that we're not that worried about the fact that we might lose something in not being a cult brand anymore. We're really focused on being a really big scale brand, a huge brand internationally and in, in the UK. And it's brilliant that we've done the distribution job really well here in the UK. And so now it's over to me to make sure that consumer demand and pull through, you know, matches matches the good work that my sales colleagues have done. We've got plenty of work to do to build the same thing in other markets. We're, we're fortunate it's going very well in, in mainland Europe, you know, big businesses now in, in Germany and France. Um, and exactly as you say, it's hard because we can't necessarily travel quite so easily to those places and, and have the same kind of sense of what's going on in the ground. But we do have people in those markets and, and we're growing rapidly there. And then, yeah, we, we kind of think the sky's the limit globally, actually, for this. And, and we're getting lots of inbounds from retailers and, and, and so on who are, are keen to make this happen in, in their markets as well. So it's sort of an exciting bounty of opportunities in front of us, if I'm honest. I look forward to finding my first small kind of freezer cabinet in the snack aisle, which would be full of full of uh, little moons. Thanks so much for sharing that um, with us today, Ross. And also thanks for your honesty about your personal journey in this. Uh, it was really interesting to hear. So thank you from me. And thank you from me as well. Thanks, Ross. And we'll be we'll be going to, to, to get our little moons as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> I very much hope so. Thank you very much for having me. Wow, what a great conversation. And it really interesting for us, I thought, just to kind of kick us off to, I guess, be talking to talking to a marketer rather than the founder of the business, kind of where we are in terms of this series. And I think probably my first takeout, actually, from the whole interview was actually just how refreshing to get that honesty and self-awareness. I thought some of what would actually be really useful and certainly was useful for me, I'm sure you feel the same and I'm sure people listening will, is just that importance of knowing as a marketer who you are 
and where you want to be. And that actually part of the story that Ross shared with us was around being made redundant and a really difficult time and actually turning that into self-reflection, taking that moment to think, where did I do my best work? Where was I happiest? Where can I, you know, in that kind of startup to scale up kind of moment in his career previously, really then looking for that opportunity and then being able to combine that by going, do you know what? Actually, I really love food. This is my space. This is my way of working and actually bringing all of that together. And to be able to do that, having been through a really difficult time on a personal level, let's face it, so many people have been through that, particularly recently, to do all of that, then step into a founder-led business, which is a challenge, which isn't easy, as, as we know, to be able to do all of those things and then to have the impact that he's been able to have on the brand and the business is, I just found that actually so inspiring and just really motivating in terms of what the importance, I guess, of the personal within strategy and the right person with the right brand at the right time. I completely agree. I think it, I think Little Moons and 2021 is a kind of case study that will be taught and, and written about. Um, and I think, yeah. it, you know, it, I feel really happy that we actually got Ross as the story was kind of still in development. Mm. Um, and there were so many, so many things I think you and I were both kind of scribbling frantically as, <laughs> as he was speaking to try and sort of pull out what are some of those key lessons or key insights. And certainly one of the things that I found fascinating was when he talked about I mean, obviously, so Little Moons were were quite were are arguably still a cult brand. They yeah. can be quite hard to find. There's a scarcity. Certainly, I remember, you know, in in our little Tesco by our house, that um, there was it was amazing excitement when a Little Moons shipment arrived, and there were, there must have been sort of four or five teenage girls with their with their parents. They're like, Little Moons arrived. Little Moons arrived. <laughs> and, you know, that's, it was a real moment. But yeah, I, I found it fascinating when he was talking about the fact that. He's got to try and keep that sense of kind of style and edge, but you you don't want to be a hard to find product. You know, it's no. they, they have mainstream commercial aspirations, and I thought that debate around how do you keep the edge, and then he when he related it back, um, I think he was talking about you know with 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 Wagamamas, you know that was the whole you know it's a mainstream brand, but he was always trying to make it feel very um, in culture leading you know leading edge but mainstream at the same time yeah and some of those moments from previously in his group like the whisper moment creating kind of cultural ripples yeah I think I think you're right I thought that was really interesting and how you navigate that with business kind of objectives but also knowing just enough scarcity just enough to kind of yeah na- navigate that mental <laughs> physical availability kind well, of knife edge, is obviously a kind of a an instinctive PR man mm. like he gets a PRable story so again you know for for people who might not have known it whisper probably a decade ago they were going to delist it they were going to kill the brand and a Facebook group sprung up a genuine Facebook group sprung up not a kind of marketing um, <laughs> capitalistic uh, Facebook group to, to bring it back to life and and Ross when he was at Cadbury's kind of jumped on that and turned it into a story he is very quick to see the beginnings of something. I think his insight about when he talked about TikTok and how he was very clear that the TikTok phenomena was a phenomena 
but in order for it to have impact, he needed to to upweight it and scale it. Yeah, and and that was when he then you know talked to his his PR agency, and then they reached out to the media. He wasn't prepared just to let it kind of live on TikTok. He knew that for it to have the business impact it needed, he had to kind of take it out of the world of TikTok as well. Yeah, and amplify it. And I guess there's another kind of lesson there as well in brand collaboration, not brand policing. So not kind of stepping into where people had almost kind of adopted the brand in some of those TikTok moments and were kind of, were adapting it. It wasn't wasn't exactly sticking to any kind of brand guidelines. This was not kind of official content that had been put out. Yeah. I think for me, there's also that lesson in when you get a moment like that, not holding it, holding it tight enough to be able to amplify it to your point around where can I, where can I add to this? but also not constricting it. So allowing people to play with the brand, allowing people to kind of take that on and letting it have that moment rather than that kind of, sometimes we see, you know, that brand policing where if it's not official, you don't engage with it. Or if it's not done exactly to kind of guidelines, I think, I think again, you're right. It's that instinct of kind of going, here's how I can collaborate and make this more and do that in a way that's sustainable and takes it out of cult space and into mainstream. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Out of, yeah. sort of cult space into 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 sort of culture generally. Yeah. Uh, and I think you said a key word, which was I think you said playful. Mm. And, and I think that's right. That's certainly a word that Ross uses when he talks about TikTok generally. Yeah. Uh, and little moons on TikTok. It, you know, it, it is playful. And I think he he'd said to me actually that the TikToks that they do from from little moons themselves, he never, you know, he's never in them. He's never that it's um, you know, one of their young marketeers, I think um, she's a young woman, it, I think 21 or 22, he gives her the freedom to to play and have fun and to respond to what's going on online and and to be a part of it together. Yeah, and to be platform appropriate. Again, it's one of those lessons in saying, you know how you need to show up as a brand when you're going in to negotiate distribution with Tesco, but you also know how when it's okay to kind of let go a little bit and that all of those things can kind of sit within your brand world. But, you know, we speak about this a lot, don't, you know, in terms of tone of voice, tone of action, tone of behavior, like knowing where you can, where you can let other people play. I thought that was really insightful that actually in some way it comes back to him just being (laughs) really bloody good at his job and also knowing how those fundamentals, like the building blocks of a brand all interconnect, knowing from skill set and experience what best practice looks like, but then also being brave enough to kind of go, where do I, where do I break this rule a little bit? Where do I make a new one? How do I respond to the fact that actually the way brands show up, in, you know, to use TikTok again as an example, needs to be slightly different. It's not the same rules. You know, being kind of sympathetic and appropriate within a different platform to kind of engage and have those conversations. I thought that was really interesting how he absolutely took us through that journey of knowing where all of those parts interconnected and to your point where you then can go, do you know what, this is a great story, but actually, God, it could be massive if we just invested and then founders having the trust to be able to do that. I think, again, just de-risking investment in creativity. We talk about that a lot, right? It's just... Where does that sit? Yes, that's right. I think it's also, you know, when, you know, the fact that he had two and a half thousand percent uplift in sales at Tesco, 
Yeah, just knowing yeah, directly that, yeah. after TikTok, the only thing that had changed yeah. was that they'd become a phenomenon on TikTok. Like that's a story, you know, that's a hook to 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 any journalist interested in understanding about you know about TikTok, about modern brands. It you know it gives you something concrete to to base a story off of. And a hook back to Tesco to say list us in list us in more outlets and yeah, like it's a win win. I think absolutely holding those two things in your hands and not seeing one as kind of separate to the other I thought that was great I, I also loved his insight around um ice cream being a really sort of uninnovative category you know it's either in a cone or on a stick mm. and actually what Little Moons is doing is it kind of breaks open and completely disrupts a category and opens up all sorts of usage occasions you know I could definitely you know imagine serving kind of plates of like, you know, different flavoured little moons, but, you know, at a, at a dinner party, or I can see them being a kind of quick treat for kids, or I could have them. And I, and I think the the way that it, you know, ice cream's always, you know, often it feel, you know, jelly and ice cream, it feels like a sort of a kiddie thing. Little moons is quite sophisticated and cool. You know, it's, it's almost, you know, back in the day with Hagen dust breaking the rules with kind of sexy ice cream or, you know, it, it really, it kind of breaks it open away from it being ice cream and actually sort of into the world of desserts and treats and that occasionality you can buy more often if it's not just a, you know, if it's not, if, you, if you're not, if your mindset is an ice cream. Yeah, well, you change the form, you change, the, you know, you change the context. And I think we, we sort of touched on that with Ross as well and that kind of almost then seeing becomes a snack. So then you can suddenly place it in more positions. Suddenly you can have a freezer section in the meal deal or the snack aisle. Suddenly it becomes less of a kind of, it's less of a big occasion or it's something that you can, something that you need to do in a certain kind of way or a certain sort of moment. And it actually just becomes, you just reframe how you would interact with that. And I think it's it's a really interesting space that they're playing in redefining category and redefining occasion and moments and all of that thinking that actually at the moment they're on it feels like they're only on the start of that innovation journey and actually where that where that might end up is really interesting I think though the issue will be so I uh, agree they are really opening up a kind of a new space in a new category they will have I mean I know you know already there are so many kind of me too copycat brands coming in which they're the importance of of, of brand you know yes. and actually yeah. you know, brand as you know the most powerful kind of business tool that are not you know that a business you know that the most powerful kind of marketing tool that a business can have it's you know the 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 the, the brand loyalty the affinity the, the the buzz around the brand because you know everybody, you know everybody will be innovating and bringing out new versions, cheaper versions. Um. Yeah, but it feels like that thing of you know, um, and again, they're an off-use example, but because they've kind of set that tone, you know, it feels like none of us kind of drank smoothies on the go before innocent, and that feels like that kind of kid-adult crossover that we've kind of started dis- discussing here. It's that actually, if you can disrupt enough in one way to kind of make that dint actually you can then create that ripple effect in other areas and I I think it will be interesting to see how as they start to think about MPD and formats and start to really play around with the innovation journey um I think it's going to be fascinating to see where else they 
start to play because it feels like they've given themselves permission to play anywhere, which is really exciting. Your analogy with Innocent is an interesting one. I haven't thought about that, but it, it, it you know, reminds me, you know, Innocent was such a strong brand, right? From yeah. the beginning. Because yeah. it knew itself and, you know, yeah. it made total sense that they would have um, fruit stock, they would have festivals in parks. And, and actually you can start to see yeah. with the moons, you know, if they were going to put on events, you, you'd get a very clear sense of, what, oh, completely. Yeah. The, the, the personality and the attitude and, and the flavour of the brand. I mean, they've really built something re- very, very strong, I think. Yeah, in such a short space of time, relatively. Well, it definitely makes me want to go and uh, I know. fill my freezer with little moons. I think we should go and eat some ice cream right now. Job done, Ross. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Strat Hack with me, Sarah Holland. And me, Amelia Turode. To find out more about the work we've been doing at Formbreak, visit weareformbreak.com. For more information on what we do at Ketchum, visit ketchum.com forward slash London. For more details on today's guest, everything we've discussed, and how to get in touch with us about this podcast, please check out the notes that accompany this episode. And of course, don't forget to rate, share and subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. We'll see you next time on Strat Hack.